Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Hampton Linton Catlin, who is the CEO of Vue. Hampton is most known as the open source creator of Hamel and SAS. Hampton Lintorn Catlin, welcome to Maintainable. Hi. Hi. <laughs> That's my normal greeting to everywhere I go. Beautiful. I know it's it's been a it's been several years I think since we've seen each other in person. I guess this is the closest we've seen each other in, in a long time. But it's good to get to chat with you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. And given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common traits of well maintained software? feel like I could spend six hours answering that, which I guess is why you've made an entire podcast on that subject. But I'm going to go with the simplest answer, which is that it is actively changed and worked on. And there are not dead parts of code. (laughs) And by dead parts, I mean parts of the code that have not been modified in a long time. That is a smell. And I mean, obviously, there's like a million more things. But yeah, you pop into a... uh, open source repo and you see those uh, <laughs> last changed at or test directories that haven't been modified in years. You're like, okay, well, nobody's loving this right now. What if that area code is actually being executed all the time? Is there a kind of a distinction there between, well, maybe it doesn't need to be changed because there's not, because it, it just works. I'm not saying that the, it's not valuable, you know, to have a project that, you know, isn't actively maintained, that, you know, it's just stable. So, you know, there's a I for a while and like was a foster parent to the mini magic gym, which there's been two or three of us who've kind of just inherited or just randomly somebody for two or three years old maintain it. So I I did that maybe five years ago. Yeah, look, we didn't change a lot, you know, just kept up with Ruby changes or like things that needed to happen or, you know, every once in a while there'd be some bug report or refactor of something. But yeah, for the most part, it's a very simple thing. And so, you know, I, I would say that, Probably there was a commit at least once a year, and once you get past that, but yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I have a lot of repos that sit there, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them well maintained. So Hamel right now at this point is not super well maintained, and that's partly my fault. <laughs> but you know, that's that's what happens. Like, and to me, that's part of the definition of maintenance is that it is actively worked on. So that is actively worked on, changes can happen to it, there's changes happening to it. So I think uh, for those listening that aren't familiar with Minimagic and the gems, that's, uh, we're, we're talking about things in the Ruby world at the moment for those that are in different language environments. So do you use the term technical debt at all in your career? I avoid that word. So, I mean, you know, in a my most recent job at, at Rent the Runway, um, you know, our leadership team, like the executive team, you know, we're not, are not primarily tech based. You know, I feel like words like tech debt, especially when communicating outwards, it's just such a catch all term for so many different things that like, it's much more useful to take a second and define what you're referring to. So are you talking about, we don't have enough test coverage? Is it overcomplicated code? Is it a particular repository or service that you're having issues with? Is it an architectural issue that needs to be addressed? I feel like, you know, tech debt is this sort of abstract thing. And you can cut, it's like, it can be so many different things that it, it's easier to bemoan the existence of tech debt than have a plan. If it is a small enough project or organization that tech debt is 
when you say it, you're like, I'm just going to pick on Hamill, <laughs> this project I've been trying to revive recently. It uses regular expressions as its parser. It doesn't have a real parser inside of it. And that is a bit of tech debt. I wrote the first regular expression parser for it because I didn't know how to write a proper parser. And, you know, over the years, it grew into, you know, having all the complexity that's in there. And, like, I consider that tech debt. You know, if I'm talking to somebody else who works on Hamel, I, I can use that word and they know actually exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> they know where the problems are. But that's just because it's straightforward and everybody is familiar. You know, in organizations would, you know, you have 200 developers and, you know, we had, recently runs running, you know, we have 58 internal services. Tech debt is just such a amorphous, like, are you talking about the way that we have too many API calls, the caching infrastructure, you know, keeping our dependencies updated, security, like what, where, where are we even talking? So that's a, a very long answer, but I don't like that term in complex environments uh, with complex problems because you should really figure out what words you should use that mean the, the highest value areas. I, I would imagine that, you know, in those types of environments where you've got like that many different services and a lot of developers and there's other stakeholders that are working on, like they're looking at what's, what are they, what are you contributing to the product or new features? And how do you bundle in those types of conversation as, as on the technical side of being like, well, in order for to do this, we're going to need to do some refactoring or we're going to need to update some dependencies or we're really hitting some friction over here. Do those get added as like tickets or stories into some big backlog or something? And how do you how do you navigate that effectively? Or how do you coach the team on how to like have those conversations with stakeholders that are kind of like, well, what am I getting for that? I mean, I, I would say it's never enough, first of all, as a technical leader. Like you, you know, if you have put on my programmer hat or architect hat, it's never done. Right? Like there's so, especially in a complex environment, like there's so much that I want to invest in. Then, you know, as a leader, you have to put on your business hat and, you know, we need to have deliverables. If you have a service that, yeah, all it does is, let's say, take uploads of an image file and it doesn't need to do anything else. It doesn't need to scale and it's not been touched in forever yet. Like, is that worth investing in or not? Because I think, and I'm answering this from a sort of senior leadership perspective, because I think on a team, yeah, you take it and you make it part of spreads. I mean, there's lots of techniques for doing that. But I think when you're looking at from like a meta perspective, like big investments, words like investment are the right one to use. So I'll uh, take as an example, there was a, give me a we're just talking about Rent the Runway, which I'm no longer at Rent the Runway as of uh, four weeks ago. But, you know, there was one service that it processed payments, right? It had, when I started three and a half years ago, it just nobody wanted to touch it. It was considered the scary monster that it handles order processing and just, you know. Don't fuck it up. Yeah, just like people were going in there and what they would do is if you needed a new endpoint or to change behavior, they'd copy paste an endpoint and then just modify the one line. And they knew that they had not messed up the original callers uh, and they knew that they had done it right. But, you know, they ended up with four copies of the primary endpoint that were mostly the same. But, you know, what we ended up doing is obviously is a growing business. Something like order management is the most important thing you're doing when you're processing orders. So it's just not acceptable as a business to not have people be familiar with it, understand why that's getting called and be able to, to live in it. So, you know, we put together actually a couple teams to kind of go full time on 
working through what would broadly be called tech debt there. But really what it was is the business needed those capabilities. Like we knew that we wanted to offer new membership types and the tax rules as you get bigger, get crazier. And there's ERP systems and like, you know, tons of stuff. And like, it's just not acceptable to, to go up on it. So, you know, I think the word investment applies not just to features, but to dealing with uh, the maintenance and how how well maintained a particular repository is. I'm just using the word repository, but it could be anything. Right. What are some of the technical hurdles that you've personally needed to kind of get get over or climb over when you've been dealing with, say, older, I emphasize older code bases? So many. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've been a, worked on a lot of different systems, and I, I honestly think each one can be a little bit different, especially if you're where you're at on the uh, microservices to monolith and sort of what the deployment patterns are. So are you API are you, you know, back-end engineering? Are you front-end engineer? You know, work on a website? Are you working on a mobile app? I think all of these have kind of different technical challenges. One of the ones that comes to mind was, you know, every time you choose a technology or a design, just generally speaking for any piece of software, right, you're making trade-offs. There are selections you make and how it is built that you work towards, yeah, what you think the the goal is, right? Um, and so I was at uh, I was CTO of a company called MoveWeb that, that's definitely still around back about eight years ago. And, you know, when I first joined, they had just signed Macy's uh, to power their whole mobile experience and, you know, got a big check for it because this is before Responsive was in anywhere near powerful enough. Yeah, like eight, nine years ago, there wasn't, re- you know, Responsive was very difficult. And I'd been at the Wikimedia Foundation building their mobile experiences. And so anyhow, I, I got this job and I, I walk in. It's really cool system, but it was built in Ruby, which as we brought up, I, I have a, a history in Ruby. But the problem was that this needed to be, the design of the system was that every time you browsed on a mobile device, a website, every request would get transformed and customized in transit back to the customer, uh, back to the user. So imagine a CDN, but that CDN uh, being in the middle actually changes the content itself on the fly, and needing to do that at incredible scale. Because you know we ended up what, during my time there. By the, the the time I left, we powered half of the IR five hundred, which is like the internet retailer. So it's just basically like huge, huge, huge volumes. And we knew that this, pro- like, when I came in, they had a prototype in Ruby, which is a great prototyping language. But for all Ruby strings, it is not what you use for a massively concurrent, globally distributed CDN. Like, that is just not the, the language is built on, you know, expressiveness and, you know, it's kind of a memory hog, but it's got nice dynamic aspects. And so, you know, I very quickly realized and had to make a pitch to a, you know, a, we just signed this big customer. Um, and make the pitch that we needed to actually rewrite the entirety of the platform. And that was a difficult pitch to make. Uh, Luckily, we did decide to do it, and actually it worked, which generally speaking in my career, and I think everybody's careers, the big rewrite is the worst idea anybody's ever had. You know, it's only when the fundamental technology choice from scratch was just not appropriate. So what we ended up doing was 
it worked like a basically had an SDK. So developers, we had like a language and some stuff. So you would kind of customize the site and, and can change things. And so what we did was said for the next six months, you can continue to sell the product. We can launch new sites, but we are not going to add functionality to the core platform at all. Zero. If you want to scale this thing, you, we cannot add anything. And then to the development team, the marching orders I gave them was, you have to make the new application, which we chose Go before 1.0, which that's a brave choice in retrospect. We chose Go because high concurrency, very fast, native compilation, all sorts of nice things. I was like, you have to make it act exactly like the Ruby application. Every single aspect of it has to be 100% compatible, including the logging format. So we have to build a Go logger that looks and feels and blogs exactly like the Ruby application. What that did was it was able to focus the team on, like success was clear. It was clear what success was. Because if you, you know, don't define the problem really clearly, you know, for engineers, it's very difficult. Like, oh, maybe we should add new features. Maybe we should do this. Maybe, oh, you know, I heard about a new logger. I even made them, because uh, we had a, a DevOps team that was, you know, keeping up with the success of the business as best they could. And, you know, they were underwater and they had gem based deployments because it started with Ruby, uh, which that's Ruby's kind of package manager. And I made the development team package their Go library inside of a gem uh, with the same version numbers and everything so that literally nothing in our deployment pipeline needed to be aware that this was an entirely different rewrite. So about five months later, it actually took less time than we had allotted. Uh, we were able to roll it out to all of our customers. Nobody understood it was happening uh, in the background because, once again, the it did exactly what we have. Like we built a, a test suite to just ensure perfect matching. And actually, it did. <laughs> One thing went wrong, and that was uh, we deployed out the, to the first couple servers, and the memory footprint just started, like, just screaming high. Like, it just was would kill the box in just, like, 10 minutes. And we're like, what, you know, what's going on? Like, they, I can't re replicate this locally. And part of the fun of being in that era and with a pre 1.0 Go, the garbage collection didn't work on 32-bit machines. And it just so happened that the servers they had spun up before were 32-bit. And so the application worked fine, except it was just the garbage collector, which is so strange. I, I never got a full answer on how something you know, it would totally run on a 32-bit box that was compiled for 64-bit, except for the garbage collector being the exact one thing it wouldn't do. But so the uh, the DevOps team did have to actually go upgrade all the boxes to new 64-bit images, uh, which they wanted to do anyway. But that was the only. <laughs> it took. I think that took that delayed by about a week. We're like, okay, roll back. Let's let's go figure this out. I'm assuming that you know that kind of scenario where you know, as you mentioned, like big rewrites are notoriously. A negative experience, like maybe just kind of simplify that, but uh, <laughs> but having that kind of very clear expectations of like making sure things match up, were you able to do something? Were you did you like were you able to roll that that kind of approach out like like over a phase to see is like things matching up, like the logs are still matching, or did you any sort of? I know there's been some examples where I've seen people talk about how they'll they'll still be serving things through both in parallel, but then they can compare, or maybe having a request hit both and make sure that they're matching the responses and everything between both environments before they 
fully turn that on to all traffic getting through it. One of the nice parts about this, which once again, the way we had also architected this system was that it was stateless. So basically given um, what we called a slug file, which was a, the instruction set, this would, which was actually a protocol buffers. So we would build a whole object tree of the instructions and then serialize it to disk as a protocol buffer binary. So given one of those and a domain and a request coming in or out, actually, you can do it as a functional test, right? So, you know, if I'm doing a stateful web application or something, right? Uh, One-to-one parity, yeah, I, things in production can definitely be different in subtle ways. Maybe you have users that have states that you didn't test in, in your test suite. Um, but luckily for us, what we basically did was took production traffic in the Ruby system and then just wrote it all to disk, given this instruction set of slugs and then given this you know, request and response, what is the output and what is the log output and write both those down. So we sort of collected a library of all of our customers' traffic. And then as the developers were working, they're able to use that as basically their test library. So we were able to run that against that. So we actually didn't, I mean, I, I think we deployed, we had pods in different geographies. So we, we definitely like deployed out a new pod. So, and uh, traffic was going to different, we couldn't really control that. But we didn't actually, Aside of like going to the sites and making sure that nothing broke, you know, we were confident enough that the constraints on the system allowed it to work. Which, you know, honestly, anytime you can remove complexity or a cons- like a, a variable and anything you're doing with tech, you know, jump at it. Like, only add complexity where you need it. And for this particular instance, what the complexity we needed was global distribution. We terminated Walmart's SSL cert with credit cards going through it. It would get processed, and then we'd re-encrypt it with, like, it's a man, we were a sophisticated man-in-the-middle attack that the, the customers knew about, right? We needed this to be something that, you know, the security heads at companies like Macy's and Walmart and other big retailers were comfortable with. So, you know, for us, it was almost like simplifying that to be the smallest, like, this application could not do anything that wasn't this one task. So, you know... But that, that's not normal, right? Like, so I'm founding a company called uh, Vue, V-E-U-E. And, you know, it's much more a traditional web application. It's, it's in the video streaming space, though. So I'm trying to isolate as much of the complexity. Like, the application itself, I have actually haven't really been involved in the Rails Ruby community for about five years. Um, been in more of the Java React universe. But with this particular project, the requirements around it, you know, are that the video streaming aspect is very complex, but everything else is user management. It's just normal sort of website-y things. And it's like Rails and just going stock Rails with exactly everything that a normal Rails developer would do removes a lot of complexity of a certain type, right? The risks are gone from that because it's like, I can go hire a Rails developer. You know, this doesn't need to be complicated. But you know what needs to be complicated? The video streaming aspects. Mm, like, right. I'm not putting that through Rails, but that's like its own thing. And, and keeping that as separate as possible is, is just really important because like there's the essential complexities and those should be your only complexities uh, if you can. Now, obviously when you're walking into tech debt, you know, I'm saying that now I have a green field and I get to build something. But you know, my other jobs when you walk in with a, a system that you didn't get to design from the beginning, or maybe the requirements weren't totally known at the time, 
you know, you don't have that luxury. So you're kind of like, well, I guess we're microservices now. Don't know if we need it, but we are. So, you know, and that's, that's, that's a lot more complicated. So I'm feeling pretty lucky these days because it's just such a simple app. That's great. What's your take on the balance between uh, microservices and the monolith and hybrid environments? Do you have a strong opinion on that? Do you think teams maybe prematurely optimize that? Yes. <laughs> uh, sorry, I have so many feelings and thoughts on that question. Yeah, I I don't think that there's a universal answer at all. I think extreme or exclusive thought on either side isn't constructive. Because I, I believe that somebody who says, I will only have a singular monolith and I could never consider breaking it into two. Now, by the way, that person doesn't exist, but the opposite does exist, which is every small function should be a different lambda that's entirely separate. And I'll have 6,000 lambdas all in different repos and like I'll use different programming languages and I will never tell a developer what programming language to use. I've definitely talked to those people, but that's not useful. Right. Like it's it's just not. And I think fashion, it tends to just swing back and forth between the two. And I, I do think we're moving back towards things that are closer to a monolith. But every time it shifts a little, like what do you even consider a monolith? Right. Like these aren't single threaded applications running on one server. Like that's that's not what's happening. And even like so there's a, a project called Booster, booster.cloud. And it's done by a group of engineers that I've worked with a lot called the Agile Monkeys. And they, it's basically a singular repo. It feels kind of like a monolith in that you're writing in one place. But what it actually does is really interesting. Like to deploy your application, you kind of use their standards inside there. And then what it actually does is goes out into Google Cloud and AWS and sort of orchestrates and creates lambdas and all the crazy whatever is that are needed for a super ultra scalable non-singular application. So it's this sort of hybrid thing where you're like, well, I mean, your test suite's all here and I'm developing it as if it was a hybrid and it's all in one language. And, you know, it has kind of very clear like data store, you know, you have to put a lot of constraints to make this work, but, you know, it's kind of CQRS stuff. I'm not sure if you're from like control systems, but like if you're willing to, to kind of think of it that way and use GraphQL, you, you get this crazy cloud expression that is would be if you were hand building it an absolutely insane number of you know sort of microservice worlds to me i kind of think of that like a monolith ish but it is sort of taking the lessons from the sort of cloud native environment some of the a lot of the stuff we've learned about microservices <laughs> my personal preference is it's mind-blowing it's called service-oriented architecture and basically put enough complexity that one fully staffed team of about 10 would be able to support it. And sometimes it can be a monolith and you sort of break it up so that internally there's different areas that function as services, or you can actually totally launch them separately if that helps and gives you gains. Like, I think the middle, honestly, is where it's at. But like, as I'm starting a project right now with me and just a couple other developers, like, yeah, we're just building in Rails, like it's a monolith. But later, will our processing pipeline for the interactive chat, if we become as successful as Twitch? Yeah, I'm probably going to go pick something like Go or Rust or something to build a, you know, fiber-based threaded multi-tenant event source system. Like, <laughs> but not today because I don't need to. So I shouldn't. 
which that would just increase the complexity and the risks. And like that doesn't serve the purpose. Especially in that that early era of trying to get your get to that product market fit and you're in that startup phase. And so, you know, I talk with teams sometimes where like, okay, we're like six months into this project, we're not quite launched yet. And then I'll go, they'll ask us to come in, take a look at their code or something and, and provide some some consulting or, or even maybe help contribute to the project. Then I'm like, how have you already broken this down into so many different microservices at this point? You haven't even launched this thing yet. And and they're they're like, well, we're just planning ahead. I'm like, you don't even know if you're gonna be in business in a year. So is this faster? Maybe I don't know. You know, like maybe that's a, a debatable conversation for people that are more familiar with doing that. But it's it is an interesting paradigm shift to go from like, what do we need to get this thing launched and to see if we get customers and to adapt quick quickly? Is now do we have a scaling problem? Because you at first you you're scaling to customer one, right? So depending on your type of I don't know, application you're building, I suppose. But yeah, I mean. I have just spent the last three and a half years of my life shepherding and attempting to address the tech debt of, of a, you know, the t- eight years later, what's the result of starting that way? I will tell you it, it's a mistake. It adds a lot of complexity because there are ways to do microservices really well, even early, but the constraints you have to put on it are extreme. Like complexity will spiral out of control. Like you really have to be super strict and I think the testing story is really important. You have to come with something that, I'm just gonna use the phrase naive microservices. So you're just building some node apps, let's go with that. Like they're just, you know, simple and maybe they have a couple tables and you know, you're just using like REST API calls with some JSON, right? So you're doing like just really simple, two services called back to each other. You know, you, you build 10 of them, they're all talking to each other. If you haven't built the ability to totally, absolutely ensure that a change in service A will not break service B, and that you can solve that to the level of like when I was talking about how we were able to run that test suite and just 100% know it's perfect. If you don't have enough tools, processes, protocols, whatever you want to pick, I don't know, you address it however, that you know even going into the future, you can predict with certainty the state and functioning of the system. If you don't have that fully answered, do not do that. Now, there's a bunch of tools out there that can help, right? There's like cool networking protocols. There's like Envoy stuff that you can do. There's like really cool integrated test contracts between API. I mean, there's like, you've got a universe of cool tools and you probably need three or four of them if you're going to do that. But I just, I think when microservices go really wrong is when you actually think that low overhead will work (laughs) because all you've done is taken, you know, it's bad if you have a a single repository or application that's calling two bits of code and it's hard to figure out what it's doing. It's even worse when there are two different repositories. They don't share the same test cases. And especially over time, it was written by somebody who you don't know. So the assumptions they made, the design they had in mind, even if they document it, like I have spent way more time writing documentation than reading it in my applications. Like, and I don't think I'm, I read MDN all the time. <laughs> but like, you know, it's it's tough when you're starting on a new project. You're like, oh, good. I found an old PDF that's got 20 pages of stuff and your eyes start to glaze over. And you're like, I'm just going to go look at the code. The point is, it's very difficult to replace microservices later. I mean, <laughs> I can promise you that the promise that if you keep it simple, you can drop in and rewrite it quickly is not true unless you have 
it's done by the person who originally wrote it. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the open source projects that you've been heavily involved in and created over the years. And um, I know you mentioned projects that you've also just jumped into and helped later on after they're built. But in particular, uh, at least within the uh, the Ruby community, you know, you're known for having created Haml and SAS, which is not exclusively remotely a uh, specific thing for the Ruby community at this point. Before I wanted to dig into SAS a little bit deeper, but what is Haml? Yeah, so Haml. It's an interesting story. I I struggled for a lot of years uh, after dropping out of college in the early 2000s to get any job anywhere. Trust me, after the dot-com bust, uh, hey, I promise I'm a good developer and I don't have a college degree was not a look that was okay. It's, it would be much better today, but back then that was really rough. And I got really lucky and met a team of people at a company called Unspace who were gave a chance on me, basically, and hired me as their, their first engineer and enough time has passed now that I can say this without going to jail. I was living in Canada, I'm not Canadian, and I did not have a work visa. So I was technically uh, both an illegal immigrant and uh, illegally hired, but haha, 10 years is there. Statue of limitation. Yeah, we're we're good. So now when I started working there, I noticed, you know, we were growing really fast. It was the early days of Rails. I I really kind of jumped into that early. I was in my kind of early 20s, uh, finally making money. It was amazing. I could afford stuff. It was great. And one thing I noticed, uh, you know, I'm definitely more of a back-end engineer, just generally speaking, despite the fact that most of the open source work I've done and most of what I'm responsible for is in the front end. But I had a team of people who were working for me, and at the time, semantic HTML was the rage, which basically is using classes and IDs and different tags inside your HTML to give sort of a, a true meaning of what the thing is. So instead of just styling something, make it red, you know, you you say it's important or something, right? You give the meaning behind it. And that was was all the rage. Um, but I had, you know, a CSS implementation team at the time, which back then, before SAS, CSS was literally one big file that your developer who did it just edited something in this giant file and they copy and pasted all over to make it work. Like, it was just flat. It was insane. No pipelines. We didn't have Webpack. We didn't have any of that. Like, just a file that gets downloaded by the browser. Yeah. And the sort of more back-end engineers would write HTML, and, like, they would just kind of dump gross HTML into the page. Like, it was all crazy. Tags weren't closed properly. Nothing had a good class name on it. They were just throwing in the data from the back-end into this sort of, like, thing, and then they just toss it over to the, the front-end team. And it drove me crazy. <laughs> Because I, I wanted something really simple. I, I feel like annotating the meaning of your code and what you're building, you know, even if semantic HTML as a sort of trend is less of a thing now, it's still, you know, actually, I think today every every single developer on the front end now, you know, we think about components, we think about encapsulation, we, we think about all these things, reusability, right? Like that's much more common today. And so I was just like, I took a beautifully, in my opinion, beautifully written bit of HTML using ERB, which is the, is the default template system in Rails. And I, it just looks like PHP. <laughs> so if you're used to PHP, that's what it looks like, old school PHP. And I just started deleting stuff. And I wanted to get rid of as much cruft as possible to in, see what I ended up with. And so what I ended up with was sort of a CSS-inspired, structured, aka indented, prototype. <laughs> like I really just started going like, don't need the div, you know, divs are what you should use all the time. You know, class equals hello. 
but we're going to turn that to dot hello, so that sort of thing. And I ended up just writing this document, and then I sat there and I just yeah wrote a regular expression to parse it, like I say, and then ended up figuring out how to you know get it to be a rendering engine and Rails. And you know I was hoping that sort of focusing on the structure, you know what's inside of what, make sure it's all well indented. Um, the sort of marketing phrase for Hamel is it's markup haiku because it's fairly short. And it's like just distilled down to what's important, or at least that's the, the hope of the design. A funny story that's designed for people who still use Hamel. If you write a tag name, so if I'm if I'm gonna use a video tag, for instance, today, you have to do percent sign video. Um, that's the way to say I'm using a tag that is not a div. The reason why it's percent sign, which is an ugly looking character, was actually at the time. It was out of fashion to use custom tags for anything, very out of fashion. So I made it the furthest you could reach with a single hand to the top of your keyboard to be the most awkward character to type. That wasn't the caret is on six, which is a little further um, on a US keyboard, but the percent sign is on five. So you've got to stretch. Uh, most people use the left shift, so you have to do this with your fingers. And that was actually intended to be a mechanical design choice into the text of the language to change oh, wow. people's behavior <laughs> and discourage my team from using tags they shouldn't use um, and make it easier to type a class name. Now, unfortunately for Hamill and myself that are now torturing people, HTML5 onwards, uh, is if you haven't gone the React route as much and you're more focused on browser stuff, we use crazy new tags all the time. So sorry, Hamill users, if you're stretching your fingers all the time. So I ended up, you know, we released that as an open source project. Ryan McMahon, who I worked with at the time, bought me flights to London to go announce this thing. And I had just been jobless, like without a career just before this. And I remember I was in London at, I think it was RailsConf EU or Europe or something. I think it was 2007, maybe six, 2006. And like, I'm giving my talk. I had just gotten a Mohawk because I needed some confidence, so I kind of like made myself look cooler than I actually am. And DHH walks into the room, who I was, you know, he was just becoming a big deal at that point, the, the creator of Rails, sorry. And he like sits down like right in front of me. <laughs> and I like nearly had a heart attack. So he sat down right in front of me and, you know, there weren't markup languages. Like that is a cat, Slim didn't exist. I mean, at this point, every single language and ecosystems has that. Hamill was absolutely totally the very first sort of markup language for HTML out there. There weren't templating engines that did funny things. Everything roughly looked like PHP, inspired, or at least inspired by that. And so, you know, here I am like proposing this like totally weird thing and I, I nearly lost my mind. But luckily, you know, people started getting really interested in it. And at that point, I started having, it was still subversion, uh, you know, Git wasn't really a thing and GitHub definitely didn't exist. So we started having this, random person started adding features to Hamel that went by next three. It took a while, it took about six months till I like finally was like, you know, who you know, like who are you? Hey, thanks for all the help. Like you're doing great work. And it ended up being Natalie Weisenbaum. And at the time she was 16 years old and in university, like everybody was at 16. I was like, oh you're a 16 year old. Cool. Did not expect 16 year old to be the person who was, you know, rewriting all my crappy code in Hamlet and, and adding features. Natalie, you know, we ended up <laughs> we, at Unspace, so we're these guys 
in Toronto and she was in Seattle and we wanted to take her to RailsConf. And I guess it must have been 2008. We literally, Ryan McMinn, the, the managing partner at Space, had to get on the phone with Natalie's mom to ask, can she come? <laughs> can we buy her a flight to, I think it was San Diego uh, or something. Uh, yeah, I think it was San Diego, uh, whatever year that was. Uh, can we buy your daughter, who's 16, a flight down to come hang out with some dudes from Canada um, at a conference and we're going to buy her a ticket? And her mom's like, I mean, to her credit, like we had to, we were, hey, we're nice. We're nice people. <laughs> we're not trying to kidnap her. And it was actually at that conference that I hid on the way there on a flight. I sort of prototyped what a CSS version of Hamel would be like, because I realized that CSS didn't have variables. It didn't have nesting. It didn't have a ton of features. So, you know, I helped our front end, our CSS developers by at Unspace by having their markup be prettier on the HTML side, but we didn't have anything. And actually, I would look at their code and their CSS, they would manually add all the classes together. So you just do like dot hello, dot something else, next line down, dot hello, dot something else. Like it was just, and it was so find and replace was how you would change a color. Find and replace was the only tool in the CSS developer's tool chain. So yeah, I wrote up a quick little thing. I wrote up some sample code of what I thought this language could be like. And then while at that conference, Natalie and I grabbed a like side room at RailsConf and there was actually a whiteboard in there, which was super weird, which is like some random room uh, at the convention center. And I started whiteboarding out what I thought it could be like. And she got really excited about it and then ended up on the flight home from RailsConf that year before the plane landed. She had implemented a working version of SAS, which was a submodule of Hamel initially. It was the first CSS preprocessor. It was actually the first I think preprocessor of any sort. I don't know how I keep finding myself in these really weird thinking outside the box world uh, places, but yeah, it was basically the first one. Um, like I said, we didn't even have like the idea of a asset pipeline or modifications you would do to your CSS or JavaScript or anything. That did, just didn't exist. Just we didn't have those at the time. And so, you know, SAS was definitely, oh gosh, this is a funny story. I remember when you we were first telling people about SAS, one of the things they kept thinking it was, I'd say, oh, there's variables, right? So you can set it to a color and use it. And they're like, oh, so this is like dynamic. Like you can use this to customize, like click, kind of change the color of the background. Like they were thinking it was more like a, a living document sort of in the browser. They didn't understand, like it was really hard to explain to people. It was one of the biggest things to explain that actually it would output CSS. Like this wasn't some different, this was a, language that turned into a target language. And like, it's so funny looking back because like now that is like, I mean, I write ES6 code and dabble all the time and I just know it somehow magically gets turned into a minified web packed cross compiled 16 filters happen with a polyfill and like, that's just everybody works that way now. But back then that was just like not, the idea that a target was a compatible concept didn't exist. And so, yeah, I mean, we people started to, to get it, though, once they actually were writing CSS. Anyhow, so obviously SAS uh, has gone on to, you know, we, we had times where we were the most popular in the world. A couple other technologies came along, supplanted us, and we became sort of the, the back burner as a, as a CSS language. But at this point, I mean, at this point, we de facto standard, which is really weird. Like, they Google uses it, Microsoft uses it, every, like, it's just a standard 
language now, which is strange. And that, and I, I really want to be super clear. That is actually Natalie still works full time on it. She works for Google uh, on the the Dart team, and she has added all the f- amazing features to the language. I mean, we we have other people on the team too, but Natalie is absolutely the reason why this language is what it is. I just provoked her <laughs> into to doing this, and uh, you know, actually, I, I'm gonna follow on with I'm gonna make up a question uh, right now, which is, yeah, maintainability is a is is the reason why SAS is the dominant language now. And it's we've gone through, we're now on our third full rewrite, different platform for the actual compiler. But Natalie is so specific and so cautious about, and very clear, very deliberate about every feature that gets added. Like, we don't add features as quickly as other languages did. So there was a couple other, you know, kind of competitors who you know, came out and added features that, you know, we've ended up adding some similar features, but they ended up just kind of like piling on, oh, you can do this and you can do that. Anything will work and you can use brackets and not brackets and this and that. Like, you know, Natalie's just really clear, like there are threads on the, the GitHub for the, the main SAS repo where just for years, people asking for something. Like actually import once. That feature was requested for like, eight years, like it's probably one of, that thread, everybody's just like, please give me import once. Cause originally SAS, when it runs upon an import, will go grab a local file and just process it. So, you know, you can get infinite loops. You can import things multiple times and have repeating CSS accidentally. And so people are like, please allow us just to do import once. Why are you doing this? And Natalie just always was like, no, we need to think through a module system that really makes sense for CSS, and we need to move away from even the term import. We will get to this eventually. <laughs> like, just so years and years of people begging, you know, and fast forward to now, like, Natalie has built the new module system. If you're not using Dart SAS, if you're still using the LibSAS project, I actually, that's a whole maintainability story also, but Dart SAS, the newest you know, uh, reference implementation for, for SAS compiler. It's the only one that has modules uh, with at use and at forward. And it is a beautiful design. I mean, I actually only recently, I have not been an active developer for a while. And with this new startup, I'm back to it. I've actually used it now for the first time as a actual developer. It's fantastic. Like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, that that's why she thought through this thing until it just made sense with a period on the end of it. And, you know, those other languages that added features faster, they ended up making mistakes. And sort of once you add something to a language, you can't undo it. It's where it's very, very, very difficult. So kudos to Natalie, check on the module system with Dart's ass. Thanks for giving uh, a good kind of sharing your story behind all those, those two projects were kind of, it's interesting is like, there's always this, you mentioned like there's that train or the, the flight back um, was when you kind of created that initial concept for, you know, for SAS or at least put it together a prototype. Uh, there, there's a lot of those stories out there about like how open source projects start. They're usually not this like pre-planned, like, oh, I'm going to do this and like, everybody's going to be using this one day. It, it, I feel like it, I rarely hear that. Like our spec in the Ruby community, that was started on a train trip that my company helped organize to go from Portland to Chicago for the very first RailsConf. And uh, Stephen Baker and a couple other people are on the on the train trip started coming up with this idea for using our spec with and with Rails and stuff. And so it's always like this fun little like piece of history within the community. I'm like, oh yeah, that was just on a train ride. People were kind of like thinking it through this through this thing, and now it's like 
it's it's what most people write their test work or in in the Ruby on Rails community these days. But uh, so for those listening that are curious about starting open source projects, you might have that success one day of having a project that does grow and is widely used. But quite often it's just those little like creative ideas that people have and like let's see if I can make this one thing a little bit more efficient or improve the maintainability of something or like I remember when we first started using tools like SAS and I think less at one point as well within our own team here on projects, there's the ability that you could copy and paste like existing CSS file into something and not do anything yet. And it still worked. It's like, okay, cool. It processed something. That was, that was really great. And like, Oh, now I've got variables, you know? And then like the front end team was like, they got really excited about that. Like, Oh my gosh, Hamel was a different beast on our end. I remember early on. Cause it was like, we had front end developers that were like they knew their HTML and like, well, I can put in placeholder stuff here. And then the back end developers can put in some of the dynamic things. And that was like the little trade, like who's responsible. Like it was a shared working space. And I remember those first couple of projects where we would inherit a project using Hamel. And the front end developers would be like, what the hell is going on here? Like their mental model just kind of blew up a little bit, but they got they got over it and they they've and now we have front end developers that prefer to use that. And then we're, you know, 12 plus years ago, I remember people being like, I, this is what this is too complicated for me. Yeah, Hamel is a very divisive technology. Like, how many times, like, you know, I'm at a conference and somebody like come up to me and they're like, "Hey, yeah, nice to meet you." I have to tell you, I hate Hamel. I'm like, oh, well, nice <laughs> to meet you too. I'm glad that you hate Hamel. Um, yeah, and actually, so you mentioned there just a little bit. You know, there were two big resets that we did with SaaS, kind of fundamental bets and risks that we took. Well, one was originally, yeah, it was white space sensitive. You could not copy properly formatted CSS directly into the original version of SaaS. Yeah, this still causes confusion. They're, like People say, oh, I'm not a SaaS developer. I write SCSS. Um, well, SCSS stands for SaaS CSS. It's the standard syntax now. But it used to be, it didn't have the curly brackets. There was no semicolon at the end. And then it was some other languages like Less came out that were more compatible with CSS, um, which I might be mistaken now. Now that I, now that you're saying that, I'm like maybe that was what the team was first using. I think that might that might be accurate. So well, yeah, I mean, it was the first moment. Like they maybe so some people are using SAS, but you know, a complaint was that at the time, yeah, it wasn't compatible with CSS. You couldn't just drop it in. Your whole team had to write SAS or did not write SAS because you could convert it. CSS into the the indented and version we had a converter, but then you basically had to get all five. You know, if you had a team of five, you're like, okay, everybody, we're using this new thing now. And all it took was one person to be like, don't touch my files. Maybe they actually changed too. They might have started. To, I, I don't remember perfectly. But you know, we we lost a lot of market share because everybody was like, oh my gosh, I like it so much better. They can just paste it in totally, and it totally dawned on us. We're like, that is better. <laughs> so it, it's funny that that sort of lesson. I would say it was a lesson taught us something that is still a big design feature of SAS, which is that we don't want to know about CSS and we want to leave CSS as much alone as we can. So we work very carefully, especially, you know, Natalie with the W3C working group to make sure that, you know, what are the, what characters on the keyboard and symbols are they interested in the CSS working group? And how are they thinking about things just to make sure that we are not ever going to introduce something that we end up being not compatible with. And that, you know, obviously the first version was didn't even really look like CSS that much. So, you know, we weren't we didn't have that. But then it was like, 
the when we first had the syntax for SCSS, that's the CSS compatible one, that's standard now. Yeah, it was like it was a philosophical change, and actually we've stuck with that much more strictly than than other languages. We almost like swung entirely the other way. And the other thing was, you know, we the original implementation was in Ruby. Original one was inside Hamel. We ended up pulling it out into its own, but it was primarily the Ruby world. If you wanted to use this and you were writing a Java application or a PHP application, uh, you could either use probably a not very well implemented PHP fork that somebody had or a different language, but you wouldn't really go install the 200 megabyte Ruby interpreter on your machine. It's not part of your pipeline or your deploy or anything. It was a lot to ask. So I sort of, I was, I was actually at the same time I was at MoveWeb when we were working on that CDN sort of like system. I got permission from our CEO, Ajay Kapoor, to basically have an engineer work full-time on building a C port, or C++ really, port of SAS called LibSAS that would be much faster than the Ruby implementation. But more importantly, C is something that is incredibly portable. So you can, if something's written in C, I can wrap it in a node package and then put that right into the node environment. I can put it right into PHP. I can put it into Python. I can put it into Ruby. Like all those are totally easy, actually, pretty easy to build a bridge between the two. So we sort of, you know, did the crazy task of building in one of the most difficult languages out there. Uh, C++ is not user-friendly. And I will tell you the biggest challenge with that is that people who write C++ don't know about or care about SAS. And people who write SAS are the furthest from the type of person who likes writing C++. So LibSAS is, is the dominant implementation right now um, of SAS. But you know we are going to be deprecating it fully uh, shortly because I don't. I'm not a good C++ developer. I'm not. The, I I can't do it. And Dart SAS, as I said, the one with modules is 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 actually has a portability story now to Dart um, as a language. That, um, that we can actually start embedding it into things like Ruby gems and node modules. So if, you, if, if you're using node SAS, you're using libsass behind the scenes, and it doesn't have a lot of features, and there's a couple of quirks about it that are very difficult to fix. And there's been a great team working on that, by the way, Marcel Greeter especially, they've been working on that project for years, and it's great. But it's just, speaking of maintainability, it's incredibly hard to maintain that project and keep interest on it, um, which is why we're sort of flipping over to this new platform thanks to, you know, I think Google has three or four engineers now working full-time um, on that implementation. So it's really, really quite quite cool. But those are two big bets was the, and and I think both of those are what has made us into the primary language. I think doing the LibSAS thing was required because it got us into every ecosystem, right? So if you were writing Python one day and you then you went to a Java project, you can use the same language, right? We're not going to stop you and, and but now we're, we're having to keep the same portability story. We're just going with a um, very different language. We'll be back with our interview with Hampton in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media or writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Hampton Linton Catlin. I really appreciate you kind of digging into sharing those background stories and on these projects. And it's 
you know, it's, it's always interesting to, you know, as someone that helped be around during the origin of those projects and knowing that there's now people full-time working on those projects, getting paid to work on it and contribute back to the community. That's, that's pretty awesome to like, I would imagine that's being pretty awesome. I don't have that sort of, uh, quite that sort of experience with my open source projects. I've been very, there's some people use some of my open source projects, like, oh, my Z shell is like one of the ones. And there's people that are working on it, you know, they don't get paid for it necessarily or anything, but there's a lot of people that use it every day. And that, that I enjoy being part of that experience. And it's, it's not something I ever manifested. Like I, I think, you know, it just like things have a life of their own sometimes. And it's been, it's fun being part of the adventure, I suppose, and kind of see where things kind of take you. I want to thank you for also for you know helping you're thinking about those types of projects and coming up with like how can I make the like improve the maintainability because maintaining HTML files, CSS files, those things were really painful at one point. And you know, I was I'm also curious if you've seen some like if you know, as you've worked in these different environments, something that you mentioned dead code earlier when it in terms of code that isn't touched very often, or I think another challenge sometimes we have with projects, you know, regardless, I would imagine across any framework and technology, uh, especially the web technology, finding if there's areas of JavaScript or CSS that aren't even used anymore in the code, like, like that stuff seems really tricky to try to track down and nobody's, you know, people are nervous probably about deleting sections of from a SAS file or a CSS file. I mean, like, well, I don't know who's, have you seen much in that space in terms of being able to track kind of like usage of those areas in code? Uh, I have not to be honest. The interface between CSS and the browser is incredibly complicated. And, you know, the fact that the output of HTML is not determinate um, for the most part. And, you know, from React to any generator, class names can change. There could be, you know, you get the, like the fourth Sunday in February problem <laughs> where just like you have no idea when that code might trigger. It's a rare moment that you have complete predictability in software. And like always try to push for that, right? I love that you're actually bringing this up because I'm gonna kind of pivot this into a, a, a mini rant about something kind of different. So you were talking about people starting open source projects. There's two ways to do it. And it's gonna sound like I'm being a little bit mean about the first category and maybe I am, but if you wanna get started in open source and you haven't done open source or you're struggling in your career right now to make a mark, there's a guaranteed 100% way for you to have a decent open source project that will get you a job. And that is look into a mature ecosystem. So go look at Ruby or Java or Python, kind of know about it, then go into an entirely new ecosystem. So Rust is very new. Kotlin is sort of emerging. Uh, Dart is pretty new. There's some of these that are starting to get attention. Crystal, I don't know, some of these like random things. Most of those new ecosystems, it's almost like nutrients hitting soil. Those areas tend to have a, well, there's a lot of stuff they haven't made yet. So like our spec being example, behavior or BDD was a trend outside of that. Like it, I'm not saying our spec isn't great. I use it. It's, it's very good. But like, you know, that is taking a trend or a thing from another universe and bringing it over into a new, we brought into the Ruby world um, and sort of brought that in. And that is that first category where basically you're porting or you're bringing a capability to an ecosystem that is new. And that is always, you know, be careful about which ecosystem you pick. Um, make sure they're nice people there. But like that's, that. I, I mean, I recommend if you have never done an open source project, 
and you've never been involved in a new technology, always go learn those things and you can, I'm sure Rust needs a BDD plug <laughs> universe, like go figure it out and make it native to that. It's very creative because also, it, you know, languages are different. So it's not like copy paste. There's definitely the matchers in our spec are, you know, very Ruby-like and sort of exist in this metaprogramming universe. And then there's the second category, which is what <laughs> probably you were just kind of talking about one, which is just a problem that is so common that we've forgotten about it. Like there are things that make your job as a developer and other developers around you and people around you, there are millions of things right now that are not optimized that we do and we don't even know that it's a problem, right? Nobody was walking around going like, oh, I hate my CSS files. But it is about finding those problems and what you just talked about, one that's huge, the you know that interface between CSS and the browser and the fact it's very difficult to detect usage patterns or separate things or really understand where things fall. And like, that is a problem that, yeah, it bugs me and I've forgotten about it. And so somebody out there listening to this, like, there's tons of problems around you all the time. And that's the whole point of innovation and invention, right? It's finding those problems that you don't even know are problems um, and, and trying to not go blind to them. So like, do you have this? I mean, every, I think everybody does this. I have this thing where, okay, I have chalk on my desk and it's not near the chalkboard and it's been here for a while and I don't see it anymore. <laughs> like I, it's just, on my desk, right? So you don't see it. Or if something's on the floor and it's been there for a while, you just, you kind of go blind to, to problems that you see all the time. And I think getting yourself out of that and trying to step back and see what that thing is and try to see the problem and actually notice that there's an issue, that is the first step in inventing. Like it really is. It's combining the new technologies with a problem that people didn't even know they had. Like nobody was begging Thomas Edison to make a light bulb, right? They just thought, I've got candles. I got candle. <laughs> that's what it that's what we've always had. That's what what do, you, what do you mean? Like I, I got kerosene. And so, you know, he was like, We have something better. <laughs> like, let's go make something better. And, you know, it's seeing a problem or something that isn't optimized and optimizing it. I hope I'm not too old to uh, at this point, you know, it's definitely I think a little bit easier when you're younger to go totally blind to those because now I, I know a lot more, which means I also know how to get used to these problems. And so, but I just really, I really encourage people. Like I, I really do think that, you know, we can make things better by solving those problems and going to make people's lives better. And that's, that's really what inspires me. I really appreciate you kind of like sharing like that, those, those different types of scenarios. Yes. The, you know, if you're, if you're someone that's interested in participating in open source projects, a lot of people don't know where to start, you know, like they're, or especially if they're a junior developer, I'm always like, well, at least contribute back to the documentation. Like, did you hit a problem trying to even like, use this gem or library they're using and, and the documentation was inaccurate and you've had to work around it? Submit a pull request for that. But then also that other aspect of like, when there's new technology frameworks and tools out there and like if something new pops up, someone generates a new framework and you think there's a little bit of, there might be a little bit of momentum behind that. They're going to need credit card processing potentially at some point. They're going to need all these different tools like to, you're going to have to build that yourself. So if you want to build something that you can repurpose another on another project, and then maybe other people might benefit from that, that's a really good way of getting involved. And so you see that happen. I've seen that happen so many times over the years where there's like, oh, it's someone's mouth, like taking, they made a clone of something in a different technology 
it's even happened with my projects too. And like, there's like, oh, my fish and like, oh my, there's like other projects that are kind of doing very similar thing. And I'm like, one part of me is like, why would you do that? Why not just use my thing? But it's also, oh, but you still want to use that other technology. And and, okay, that, that makes sense. So that's always really cool to see how that kind of, that stuff evolves there. You can also go a little crazy, and if you keep reinventing the same type of thing out of your own curiosity, that that's another thing. Like when you have choice overload, I can be like, which known module that if there's like 25 modules that do the same thing in theory, which one do I use? And you mentioned earlier about like looking at like gems or seeing if like this is maintained, and then people have to go through and be like, which one has been has the most recent commit? Is that the way that you make the decision that that's the most reliable? dependency to pull into my application like that that's been a challenging thing i think for developers to make sense of i've seen my own developers dismiss gems because they haven't had any code contributions in two two years i'm like but is a feature complete i don't know it's like is it do exactly what we need it did you look at the, the library like well no one's maintaining it and it's like we can also maintain it too because it's open source right so like if it works and we have to make some fork it and make some updates to it that's that might get us a little bit further. So it's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing, I think, to balance those things there. But Yeah, I think, well, you know, in the same ecosystem, I think, is a little different than a separate ecosystem, right? So, like, so any project, if they've taken one of your ideas and re-implemented it in especially a different universe, go figure out what's different and steal their good ideas. Because things mutate when that happens, um, especially if it's a different pool, right? Like, there's no reason for me to make a different mini-magic, like, there's none. Like, that's, it wraps the local image magic call, period. That's it. Like, I don't, you don't need another one. But, you know, if I'm using Dart, just pick, I don't know, some language, like, there, that probably doesn't exist. And if anything, or like, let's say a functional language, right? Let's say a functional language tried to go wrap FFmpeg, or sorry, image magic. Um, if they try to go wrap the command line there, like, I bet the way they would think about that problem is interesting and might actually really influence a rewrite or something we could simplify or take back. Because literally, like I said, less being a mutation, which, yeah, when I less first came out, it's like, you know, there's the flattery, but you're like, oh, why do people like that and not my thing? But the fact that without less, like, SAS would not have gotten all those great features and realized our mistake in our design, right? Like, that's not, there's lessons there, right? Um, not just mistakes. And like, do I think that the, since less is, you know, no longer a sort of major technology, do I think they wasted their time? Like, absolutely not. Like that was incredible value. And it's, it's a shared value, right? Like that's the cool part about open source technology and actually technology, I think in general, outside of like attempting to patent things, technology being, you know, the plow, somebody saw somebody with a stick <laughs> that had a funny shape and they were able to plow with it. That somebody else took and then made a better plow. And then it slowly, you know, went from a stick to something that you could put on a horse and then you could drag like, and then like, this is how technology works. And it is a, it is always collaborative, even if they're quote unquote copying or competing. And like, I think that's so cool. I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's a ton of things in the world that, that are like that. And, um, you know, I, I just really, it's, it's amazing to watch to me. It's like evolution, um, happening in front of us all the time. I, I have never once regretted my decision to go into technology. Um, it has taken me to so many different industries, different products, different things, different coworkers, different cultures, different countries. Like, um, but you know, it's always on the same shared mission of sort of iterating towards the unknown. 
Well, I have a, you know, just a few last quick questions for you. Um, tell us, you know, you mentioned Vue a little earlier in your new venture, just like because like high level. What are you, what are you working on with that? Yeah, we're not fully announced. We're kind of keeping it under the wraps, but um, I mean, roughly, it is Twitch meets online shopping. So, you know, Twitch with coronavirus and the change and like, you know, right now we're on Zoom. Um, uh, uh, technology that at this moment in time, every uh, everybody's on video calls because we're all isolated, um, trying to stay away from this this pandemic, right? And you know, I I, I explain that out loud right now just because people are going to listen to this in the future and you know not remember how it was right now. But a lot of what we're we're missing as people is connection and community and interaction. Um, and so you know, streaming media, I think, uh, interactive live. Video is something that gives a lot of emotional satisfaction to people. And, you know, at this point in time, Twitch is the dominant video platform for live streaming, but it is aggressively about gaming. It's sort of a one lens on the world. And they do have a big category called IRL where people just do all sorts of crazy stuff. But as a platform, it's definitely not what they're going after. They literally even just rebranded their Twitch Prime to be Prime Gaming. Like, they're not thinking about everybody else. And I think that there's going to be a huge movement in a bunch of different verticals and areas to address different markets to sort of bring them that experience that Twitch users get, which I'm a gamer. I love watching Twitch. Like, I play these crazy European grand strategy games like Crusader Kings 2, which if you're incredibly nerdy uh, and want to learn just insane amounts of rules uh it's a fun video game but like you know i watch players doing that who are much better than me it's, it gives me a sense of community and belonging but my mom does not land on the twitch homepage and think this is my community and belonging and so you know i, I do think not just what we're trying to do which is kind of go after a sort of particular submarket uh, initially but i think this needs to be a big tent uh really and i i think no matter if my company is a success or, success or not and i'm fingers crossed. I think that sense of technology bringing people together when we're not physically together uh, is going to be the next big wave of companies and uh, the next big thing, really. And, you know, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. And maybe it's not streaming video. Maybe it's streaming something else. Like, I don't know. But I think it will be human. I think it will be approachable. I think it will be personable. Um, and I think it will make us feel together. And I, I do feel like these are structural changes, not just short time, uh, short term uh, changes. That is, I think, this experience of realizing how being together is not is something not something to be taken for granted, and you know it has dangers associated with it. And the fact that we have such a global network now called the internet. I mean, can you imagine if this was happening and we didn't have Zoom ready to go? as a product, right? Google Meets was there already. It just wasn't used as much. Um, and we actually all went home and kept working. And the global economy didn't entirely stop, just mostly. But like technology is going to be that thing, right? We have a plow around and things just changed a little bit. And so now we're going to need to go take these technologies and find ways to bring people together. That's interesting. And uh, I wish you the best of uh, success with that and definitely be including links to that so people can kind of sign up and be notified when you when you launch that. So a couple of quick last questions that I usually ask most of my guests. And do you have a book that you find yourself recommending to people in an industry that's not software focused? I think 
It's a book I always recommend people to read. I mean, it's just fiction, but it's Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson. And it is such a wonderful book that bridges a lot of what I was talking about, about the, the plow and technology and how thought and ideas spread and are sort of communicable and iterative and how sort of fomenting revolution with technology is important and how history all ties together. I think that that book and actually that whole era of Neil Stevenson's writing. So if you've never read something, and there's another book, Snow Crash, Diamond Age also. Those are all sort of play in this whole area of, of, of history and belonging and people and community and all the things I was just talking about. So yeah, actually those books, absolutely. I think there's they're not about software, but they are entirely in my mind fiction that is about how we interact with technology and society. Excellent. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? Twitter at H Catlin, H C A T L I N. Um, I am of the age that I'm still on Twitter, not Snapchatting or TikToking. But yeah, that's that's where I, I tweet a lot. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Hampton. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. Yeah, thanks for having me.